morning, everybody. As Carol already said, my name is Carson. I am the youth pastor here. And how's everyone doing today? Are you doing good? It's nice outside today, actually. It was uh, not as snowy as I remember it being from yesterday and the day before. So that's been nice. Um, but yeah, so I'm pleased and honored and privileged to be able to speak to you today um, about a, a character in the Bible that is really near and dear to my heart. I relate with Peter in a lot of different ways, uh, mostly because he's a ready, fire, aim kind of guy, but um, really kind of just headstrong. But uh, yeah, I really want to just dive into this today. But first, I want to share with us a little story, a little illustration, but I need to ask you guys the question first. Who here has seen the Lion King movie before? Not like the new one, like the old one, the old one, the good one, okay? <laughs> yeah, we can agree on that. That's good. And so um, the reason why I say it is because I want to talk a little bit about the movie. If you haven't seen it, then go watch it after this because what are you doing with your life? That's wild. Um, it's actually... I was looking at it, I was like, man, this movie's older than me. Like, that's kind of crazy. But um, anyway, so this movie, if you haven't seen the movie, is about a little cub named Simba. And he is this little guy. He, it shows him at the very beginning of the movie. He's shown off to the entire kingdom. And they're saying, this is going to be the new king. Like, this is after his dad, Mufasa, is the king. He's going to rise up. He's going to be the new guy. He's going to lead the entire kingdom. And so the, the first, probably third of the movie, is about him kind of growing up beside his dad, beside this guy that he sees as a superhero, this guy who just can do everything. He's strong, he's fast, and he can take on whatever challenges come his way. Um, but eventually, his uncle Scar comes in, and obviously we all know who Scar is. He's pretty, not, not a nice guy. He says, hey, Simbo, you should come with me to this valley. Uh, it's pretty cool, I got a surprise for you. And she's like, oh, surprise, I love surprises. And so he goes to this, this valley, and he's waiting for his uncle to be like, what is this surprise? Like, what is, what's gonna go on? What's going on here? And so he's waiting, and then all of a sudden a stampede comes and just starts rushing past him. And he gets on this branch, and he's waiting. He's crying for his dad. He's like, Dad, where are you? Where are you? And his uncle is telling his dad that he needs help. He needs to be saved. And so <clears throat> his dad comes, and he saves him. He does save him, but at the tragic loss of his dad. And probably one of the most heart-wrenching scenes of, like, I, I still cry to this. It's okay if you're a guy, you can cry. This is a sad movie. Um, I, was, I was crying about this because he goes underneath his dad's arms and he's just like sitting there, dad, wake up, dad, wake up, dad. Like, just wake up. He keeps pushing him and pushing him. <clears throat> and he finally gets to this point where he's sitting there and it's quiet and the dust is starting to settle. Sorry, one second. <clears throat> Losing my voice already. And... He says to himself, like, what have I done? What have I done? And he starts to slowly feel the, the shame and the guilt slowly kind of build on him. And then eventually his, his uncle Scar comes up and he looks at him and he says, what have you done? What have you done? And he starts to ask him, he's like, what, what do I do? Like, do I, do, I, do I go back? Do I tell them what happened? And his, and his uncle's like, no, 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 you don't do that because you're a murderer now. Like, do you know what you just did? You just killed your dad. You can't go back. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna do, you don't know what they're going to do to you. And so he asks him, okay, what do I do? He's, and then he just looks him in the eye and says, run away, run away. This isn't your life anymore, Sim, but you have to run. You have to go as far away as you possibly can. You need to leave this place because this isn't your life anymore. You need to go. And so the reason why I bring that up is because this is a lot in the same ways that we see in Peter's life. We see this with Peter. And for some of us this morning, you may relate in the way that you maybe feel, maybe you feel like a failure this morning. 
Maybe you feel that there's a weight on you that you just can't seem to unload. Maybe you feel that, there is, that you just aren't as good of a Christian as you used to be. Maybe you just haven't been getting your prayer life in. Maybe you just haven't been reading scripture as much as you should be. Or maybe you have an addiction that you haven't told anybody. Or maybe there's this relationship that you know you shouldn't be pushing towards, but you, but you still keep doing that. And there's just this lack of intimacy with Jesus. And instead of turning to Jesus, turning to God for your ultimate satisfaction, for your ultimate fulfillment, you turn to finances or you turn to that bad relationship or you turn to whatever it is that you can fill in the blank with, you turn to that. But I don't want to assume for any of you, I don't know where you're at this morning, but I hope that this message can be encouraging to you. And I want to say you've probably heard something like this before. You've probably heard a story like this before um, of people being restored, of, of Jesus coming into someone's life and kind of doing a 180. But I want to encourage you this morning that this is a real story. This is history. And he didn't just do this 2,000 years ago. He's still doing this today. And so we're going to be talking about this morning from Peter the denier. And so as a recap, uh, we've been doing this, this, uh, this series, Once Upon a Savior, for the past few weeks. So we talked about Judas the betrayer, spoiler alert, because you haven't read the Gospels, Judas the betrayer. And we talked about the weary, which is Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so now today we're focusing in on Peter, who is the denier. And so I want us to talk about three different points this morning. So we're going to be talking about how Jesus calls Peter and us to a new future, the lies of the enemy and that we tell ourselves, and what Jesus does with the mess of our failure. <clears throat> and so this morning, um, I couldn't nail down specifically just one text. We're going to be going all over the place this morning, okay? So bear with me. If you have a Bible, you're going to be flipping all over the place, <clears throat> but I promise it'll make sense. Uh, the, the, the pinnacle of what we're going to be talking about is Luke 22, but we're going to be going to John 21. We're going to be going to Luke 5. Like we're, we're going all over the place. So I want us to start in Luke 5. So we're going to be starting in Luke 5, chapter, or yeah, Luke 5, verses 3 through 11. So for context, if you've never read this before, this is the story of when Peter first met Jesus. This is when Peter, he's still a fisherman. He's still doing all, all, all the fish things, and he's, he's just sitting there. He's been fishing all night with his, with his buddies. He hasn't caught a single thing. And so he's sitting there, he's tired, he's exhausted. And then this rabbi, this random preacher <clears throat> comes up. Sorry. <clears throat> this random preacher <clears throat> comes into his boat and says to him this. <clears throat> he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him, Jesus, to pull out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, for some of us, this can be, as I said before, this can just be kind of like a cute little Bible story that you either remember from Sunday school, maybe youth group if you've been to youth group, or maybe you just read in your, in your, in your spare time and you say, 
This is a cool story. This is awesome. But I need to need to remember this is history. This actually happened. This is a this is a real record between two different people here, between Peter and between Jesus. And the interesting thing about this is that at the height of Peter's career is when he calls Peter into ministry. Like Jesus, he, he comes up, he shows up into the scene, this random guy that Peter's just like, okay, like he's telling me to do something here. I don't understand what's going on, but because you say so, Jesus, I'm going to listen to you. This is one of those rare moments where Peter actually gets it right. When he says to Jesus, I don't know what's going on. You're telling me to do something. I have no sweet clue why you're telling me to do this, but because you said so, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to listen to you. And he did. And this is when Peter got it right. And so my first point is this. Jesus has a new future for you and for me. <clears throat> but I could also add to the point as well is that you only figure out this future when you lay down your own future. So 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 10 says this. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. When you find, Jesus wants you to find your future independence with him. You cannot have a future with Jesus when you are independent from him. He doesn't want you to be relying on yourself, but he wants you to rely on him. That is when Jesus shows you your future. Todd Wagner, he's a, he's a preacher from the States. He says it this way. If dependence on Jesus is the goal, then weakness is our advantage. If dependence is the goal, then weakness is our advantage. So we, if, if weakness is our advantage, if weakness is for our own benefit to be able to push into Jesus, to be able to push into relationship with God, then what is our disadvantage? What, are, what, what hinders our relationship with Jesus? It's when you... Come on Sunday morning and you say, you've got it all together. You've got stuff. You've got things. You've got, you're, you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you're saying, I've worked hard and I'm doing just swell. Thank you very much. What I'm not saying is that you can say you're having a great day and you're like, you're doing well. You can say that you're doing well. But what I am saying is that it's not your, it's not because of you. It's because of your reliance on Jesus. It is your reliance on Jesus. And you need to be able to say to yourself, God, I need you every single day. I need you to dwell inside of me because I can't live this Christian life on my own. <clears throat> sure, I can love people I like. I can <clears throat> love people that maybe I just first met for the first time. But Jesus calls you to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Can you do that without relying on the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> and he's looking for people who can say that, that I can't do this on my own. I can't live this Christian life independent of you, Jesus. That's the person he's looking for. And he will use you. He wants to use you for the kingdom, for his glory. But he won't do that when you're saying, God, I, I can do this by myself. He will not use you. He's not going to force himself on you, but he wants to be at work in your life. <clears throat> John 15 verses 1 and 4 say this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Abide, <clears throat> abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The problem with Peter, as we are, are going to see pretty clearly, is that he tends to not abide in Jesus very often. He ends up abiding in himself, 
in his own strength, in his own wisdom. There's a few examples throughout scripture, but the one that comes to mind for me is when he's walking on water. And he, he, st- he says like, Lord, you can do this. I'm going to walk out onto the water and you're going to ca- carry me there. And he's walking, he's doing it. And then all of a sudden the wind and the waves start to get into his head. He st- gets scared and he relies on himself. And he starts to sink. And then the other example that we talked about last week, we're talking about the weary, is when they're sitting there in the garden, Jesus getting arrested, and then the disciples scatter. But what does, what does Peter do? He's like, okay, Jesus, like, get behind me, man. Like, I got this. I can do this. This is me. And he pulls out a little fishing knife. He's like, this is going to do something, right? Like this little, like, dinky little fishing knife. Like, I got this. This is on me. And so what, <laughs> it was funny, me, me, and, uh, me and Kim were talking about this last week, is that I, when I read this text for the first time of, of Peter um, trying to, uh, cutting, cutting the, the high priest's ser- servant's ear off, I assume he meant to do it as like a warning or something of like, like, I got your first ear, maybe the second ear if you come any closer. But like, in all reality, it's probably because he's just super clumsy. Like, he probably tried to kill the guy, and then he took a lobe off instead of his head. Like, <laughs> it's, it's pretty rough. <laughs> but um, the theme that we see over and over and over again in Peter's life is self-reliance and pride. Self-reliance and pride, and it's about to cost him. God has a new future for you and for me, but we only see it when we trust in his plans and not our own. I want us to look at Luke 22, verses 33 through 34. So this is leading up now to before Peter is, is going to deny Jesus. So Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know him. Peter's saying, Jesus, I got this, man. Like these disciples, like they're gone. They're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna like keep following you. But me, you gave me the keys to the kingdom, man. Like I'm the guy, I'm the leader, I'm the dude. I'm the guy, I'm gonna be following you to the end of time. And then Jesus is like, okay, we'll see, Peter. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Which leads us to the main text that we're going to be talking about, which is Luke 22, verses 55 through, 54 sorry, through 62. This is leading up now to the crucifixion. Jesus has now been arrested. He's being taken into the house of the high priest, and Peter is about to have an experience here. So let's go through this. Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest, Peter followed at a distance, so we can see here he's now getting a little skittish. He's following from afar. And when, and when some of there had kindled a fire, I want you to keep a mental note there, those three words, kindled a fire, in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together. Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them, one of his disciples. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this man was with him for he is a Galilean. Probably his accent that gave him away. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. In other gospels, it says he started cursing and just like, I bleep, you bleep, don't know this guy. Like this guy's like, he's getting angry. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Whew. That's heavy. He looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. 
that's heavy. To look at your teacher, your rabbi, your best friends, the man that you called the Messiah, the man that you claimed was the son of God, and then you just say, yeah, yeah, I don't know this guy. I don't know him. Then the unthinkable happens. The crucifixion happens. Jesus is carrying his cross out to Golgotha. Someone else has to help him carry this cross. He's hung up on the side of a road to be spat on, to be ridiculed, to be laughed at. And he slowly dies. But who's there at the crucifixion? Or actually, let's, let's reframe the question. Who isn't there at the crucifixion? It's Peter. Peter isn't there. Most scholars agree that Peter didn't show up at the crucifixion. And in any, if, if anything, he was probably at a, at a distance away so that he was at least safe. And see, the reason, like, I, I get that. I totally understand Peter because if he were to say that he knew Jesus, something could have happened to him. They could have arrested him, tortured him, killed him. Like, there is a weight to saying that you're following this Jesus guy because they're just about to kill him. So I get why Peter's saying this. Like, I don't want that to happen to me. Like, self-preservation mode. I understand that. But there's still this theme of self-reliance, of I need to keep myself safe, and I'm just going to forget everything that Jesus talked about for the past three years. I'm going to follow my own way. This is Peter's lowest moment. I think we can all agree that this is Peter's lowest moment. I don't think, and I'm not going to say I don't think, I don't know if you've ever denied Jesus at all to somebody. Maybe you had a friend or a family member. You're like, eh, like there was this one time when I didn't, like I said, I wasn't a Christian because it was awkward. There was some tension. Maybe your family just completely disagrees with Jesus. Like maybe that's why, but you didn't do it to his face, like to the guy in front of him. He didn't look right in the eyes and say, and you'd say, I don't know this guy. Like that was his best friend or second best friend. If you're talking to John, that's a Bible joke, in case you're wondering. <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing, um, thinking about this, is that as I've been a youth pastor here for the past year and a half, but also I've been doing ministry with youth and with young adults for roughly about, I don't know, five years, I would say, give or take. And the interesting thing is that I've, I've gotten to know a lot of different people. Um, and the people that I've got to meet, they're all awesome people, they're amazing. But when they hit this rock bottom moment, when they see... Sorry, Dave, I'm going to move your thing here. I feel like this is just right in the way. There we go. And you hit this rock bottom moment. What do they usually do? The thing that I've noticed as a theme, as a kind of a pattern I've noticed, with these, kid, when the, with these youth and young adults, when they hit rock bottom, is that they kind of have a relapse into their old way of living, into the way before they knew Jesus. So what do I mean by that? So like, I have a few friends um, from way back in the day they, they would, we would talk and they, they've been saved, they've been Christians for years and they came up to me and say, Carson, like, I want to be a missionary. And they say, like, I'm going to go to like Iran, I'm going to go to Syria, I'm going to go somewhere in the Middle East where like Christianity is just seen as like, like hostile and people are killed for this. And they say, Carson, I'm going to get killed for Jesus. Like, I'm going to die for Jesus. I'm just like, okay, like the Lord bless you and keep you. That's awesome. Like, cause we need those people, right? We need those kind of people. But that's not me. Like, I'm sorry, that's, that's terrifying for me. Like, good job that you have that vigor and honesty. Like, do that. That's awesome. But there's these moments when they hit that rock bottom that I talked about, when they're at their lowest moments. And what they originally had been saved from 
whether it's the club, whether it's drinking, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's, again, that bad relationship, they go back to it because it's comfortable, because it's what they used to know, because it's just nice and fuzzy. And whether or not this circumstance was in, in or out of their control that kind of rocked them doesn't really matter. It always kind of ends up being the same. And this is similar to what we see from Peter. So I want us to be looking at the last little bit here. Uh, we're going to go to John 21. Um, this is the last, this is going to be a big chunk of text here that we're going to be talking about. I'll divvy it up into pieces. But we're going to start in John 21, verse 3. So prior to this, this is now Jesus has been resurrected. The resurrection has happened. He's been, he's been proclaiming himself to the disciples. And Mary in, uh, has been talking with an angel. And in Mark, it talks about how this angel told Mary and said, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me at the Sea of Galilee or to meet Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. And I find it interesting because he says the disciples and Peter. Like, why would he make that distinction? Like, why is, why is there a need to make that distinction? I personally think it's because if he didn't say Peter, he wouldn't have come. Because Peter probably didn't even see himself as a disciple anymore, as a follower of Jesus. If, like, let alone being the guy to the, with the keys to the kingdom, the leader of the, of the church. He's like, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. But he singles out Peter and he says, Peter, I need you here. And we're going to see how he sets the stage for this. So this is John 21.3. This is Peter speaking. He says this, I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them, the disciples. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Seems pretty similar uh, to something we just read. But I want you to take a notice here when it says, I'm going out to fish. When it says, I'm going out to fish. So when you read this, you can kind of make the assumption that he's saying, like, I'm just going to go out to fish for a hobby, just as a distraction. Like, it's been a rough day. Like, it's been, it's been a rough three days. Like, I just need something to kind of distract me, get my mind off of things. Like, you can read it that way, and that's how I've read it before. But the way that he's actually saying this is that this is like a career shift. See, when, who, who here is a Calgary Flames fan? Got any Calgary Flames fans here? Whoa, that's really low. Yikes, okay. I was expecting like at least three quarters of the room. Okay, I feel like I'm singled out now. Yikes. So, so again, you guys all know who Jerome McGinley is though, right? So when Jerome McGinley, he was like kind of getting to the end of his career with Calgary. And he said, he got into a press conference and everyone knew that he was going to go somewhere. Like he was either going to Boston. I think it was Boston, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Los Angeles, I believe. It was one of these four. And he, like, when, when Jerome again, like, comes into the press conference and he says to them, I'm going to Pittsburgh, which is where he went for a little bit. Um, when he says that, I'm going to Pittsburgh, like, the people that are in the press conference aren't being like, you mean, like, for a vacation? You going with your kids? Like, you going sightseeing? Like, what are you doing there, man? Like, what's this? It's like, no, they, they understand. He's leaving. He's going somewhere different. This is a career-shifting moment in Jerome McGinley's life. And the exact same thing with Peter, he is shifting his career here. He's saying, I don't got anything to give to this Christianity thing anymore. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to fishing. And so this is the story of Peter giving up. The man who said he was going to lay down his life for Jesus. The man who said that I've, I'm going to give everything for this Jesus guy. He's my everything. He's the son of God. I'm going to do everything in my power for this man. And yet he doesn't. He gives up. And so this leads me to my second point, is that the lie that we tell ourselves is that God is done with you. The lie that you tell yourself is that God is done with you. 
I want to ask you a question for a second. Have you ever given up on something, whether it was a course or maybe a club or a sport team or something like that? I personally gave up on football after like three days. I was like, man, I was 16 years old. I was in high school. The coach was like, Carson, you should come play football. I was like, oh, okay. Try it. I was like, no, I hate this. This sucks. Like, I don't like getting hit all the time. Like, like just getting tackled and getting like grass stains. Like, that's not for me. It's, it's dirty. I'm not like that masculine kind of kind of guy. I'm more, I can be feminine sometimes, you know, but uh, anyways. See, my fear sometimes with summer camps, this is, by the way, I'm not, I'm not putting this, this is not a blame on camps or churches or anything like that, but my fear, my genuine fear with summer camps, with, with churches, with youth groups, is that we can so easily compartmentalize these parts of our lives where we can come and we can, we can, we can get in, into this little box that we, can, that we call Christianity and we're too scared to let it branch out into the rest of our lives. Where we're like, ooh, like if I, if I, like I, I like being a Christian at church, but as soon as I bring it out to like my friends who aren't Christians, like, ooh, like that's a little scary. Like what if they reject me? Is, I'm just gonna retreat back here. Like I'm not gonna do anything about that. See, <clears throat> the thing is, is that there's, there's, this, there's this mentality that can happen where you end up not being a, a Christian, but just a churchgoer. Where you can just be here on a Sunday and listen to a sermon, maybe roll up to your favorite friends, Maybe, maybe you go for coffee with one another and you act like this entire church service had nothing to do with your life. Where you hear the, you hear the gospel preached, you hear someone talk to you and you pray, maybe, maybe even pray with somebody, but then you act like nothing, this whole Christian thing has nothing to do with your real life. And what I want to say right now with the love from the depth of my heart is that that is not Christianity. That is something else. That is not Christianity. You are taking the gift of salvation that Jesus offers you. The free gift, by the way. I'm not saying that you have to do these things to be saved. What I am saying is that Jesus offers you a fulfilling life. That is, he says he wants to give you life and life to the full, and yet you take that gift and you say, nah, nah, Jesus, I'm okay. Like, I like, I like being saved. I like to have my, like, get out of jail free card. That's, that's cool. But I don't want to go tell people about Jesus. I don't want to pray for people. I don't want to have to read scripture every day. That's boring. Like, are we just compartmentalizing this into a Sunday service? See, Jesus didn't say to Peter, like, can we just like meet on Sundays? Can we just meet at Starbucks for a little bit? Maybe for like an hour or two, maybe. Or actually, if I know you're, you're probably pretty broke right now because you're a youth pastor, but do you want to meet at like Tim Hortons? Like, we can go just like, it's only a dollar. We can just meet there for an hour. It's like, no, like, will you follow me? The Christian life is not just a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday morning. It is every single day of your life, living the Christian life through and with Jesus in your heart. That is what it means to have the Christian life. See, Peter Maiden, he's a, he's a professor at my, my old Bible college, or was. He's recently passed away. But he said this in his book called Discipleship Matters. He says this, All of our lives are important to God. He is involved in every single part. He does not compartmentalize in the way that we are prone to do. He goes on to ask the question, is there an integrity, a wholeness about my Christian life? Or am I one thing in the home and in the church, but then quite another at my place of work or of leisure? See, we can compartmentalize so quickly. And I think a huge reason why we can do this so easily is that we lack discipleship. We lack discipleship. 
Because when we follow Jesus, and the best way to follow Jesus is in community, is with each other. And discipleship, I think, sadly, especially here in the West, is extremely undervalued. We see Christianity, and we just kind of see our own lives as just individualistic. Like you have your home, your white picket fence, all the things, all the stuff, and you just talk, maybe, maybe see, hey, hey, how's God doing in your life? And that's pretty much the, the sum of it. But I want to ask you the question, like, are there, are there leaders in your life, are there people that have spiritual authority in your life that can actually say to you, like, this is the way that Jesus wants you to go? And so there's this image um, that a youth pastor shared with me. I cannot remember who it was, so if you're listening, I'm sorry. But there's this image that uh, it's up and down, left and right, and so there's three different ways that discipleship should be lived in the Christian life. So upwards is who is discipling you? Who is discipling you? So a challenge maybe for the older people in the church or maybe for people who are just well, more well along in the Christian life is who are you discipling right now? Like, are you using your wisdom, your gifts, and your talents to actually lead people into the Christian life and say, this is how you should live? Not just as an opinion, not just as, not just as, a, as a recommendation, but are you saying, this is how Jesus wants you to live? And so side to side now is who are your peers? Who are your peers? So every Tuesday, uh, Mitch, Mitch and I and a few other people, we meet and we call it wing night. We rarely actually eat wings. It's uh, just kind of become a name at this point. But we meet and we don't always talk about like spiritual things, but sometimes, sometimes we ask the questions like, hey, how's work going? How is your relationships going with people? How is your prayer life? Or just like, or even finances sometimes. Like we share Pretty deep things, and for me, it's, it ministers to my soul because I can feel that I'm being like pushed forward, that I'm being like spurred on by my friends. And so do you have people in your life that help you, that you can stand shoulder to shoulder with and spur you on in your Christian life? And downwards, downwards is who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? So in the youth ministry, we've recently started kind of incorporating this, is that each leader has a small group that they, that they look over, that they minister to. And so they get, whether it's like the grade six boys or the junior high boys, senior high boys, girls, whatever it is, they each have a group. And what I tell them is that we need to be identifying what they're, what they're needing, whether it's, whether it's spiritually, whether it's physically, tangibly. And we need to be actually identifying this, walking with, with them, and pushing them forward towards Jesus. And so I want to ask you a question again. Who are you pouring into here at College Drive? Or maybe someone else you know that's not in the church. Are you pouring into somebody? Because we are not supposed to just be cups. We're supposed to be pipes being filled in and going out. That is how, what it means to actually be discipled and be discipling. So if I'm going to be, just as a little image, if I'm going to go and maybe make some cabinets for this hypothetical house I'm going to build one day, who would I go to for finished carpentry? Well, I'd probably go to Russ, to Bachniuk, not Neufelder Toes, sorry. We have too many Russes in this church. <laughs> it's hard sometimes. But I would go to him, not just because he's a master at his craft, which he very much is, but he's a person. He's an actual person. There's a relationship there, and there's, you're able to actually talk with them because we as people learn through relationships, through challenge, and through action. We can learn through a screen. We can learn kind of one, uh, like even by ourselves sometimes, but the best way is through relationships, challenges, and actions. But yet, when it comes to our spiritual lives, so often 
we get into this, this, this mentality that it's the opposite, where you're just like, I'll just do this on my own. I'll have my private prayer time, my private, my private Bible, which is good. You need those things. I'm not saying those are bad. But is that to the extent, is that the exclusive amount of your Christian walk that you are living is just by yourself? And the reason why I bring this up, the reason why I'm talking on this tangent of discipleship is because we see this with Peter. Who was with Peter when he was, being, when he was denying Jesus? Nobody. Nobody was with Peter. In fact, the only person that was with him was Jesus, and he was the one who was being about to be crucified. The other disciples, they scatter. They're gone. So Peter right now, he's alone. He is by himself. He is uncovered. He has nobody to protect him, and Satan's just like, this is going to be a heyday. Like, this is, this is going to be my moment, and he attacks him. And so this is leading to where we are now in John 21, where, where he's in this, this mentality of shame, of isolation, and he's given up. And so I just want to quickly say too is that when we look at the way that Satan tempts us in our lives, he never does this, this, this way where he says, look at what I made you do. He actually says to you, look at what you did. Kind of like what we talked about at the very beginning with when Scar is talking to somebody. He's like, look what you did to your dad. Like Satan never comes up to you and says, look at what I made you do. He says, look at what you have done. He isolates you. He makes you alone. He makes you feel in distress, shame, guilt. I want to tell you right now, if, you're, if you feel like God is disinterested with you today, he's kind of crossing his arms, and he's like, yeah, like, maybe you'll make it to heaven one day. Maybe you'll have a relationship with me at some point. Maybe you'll make the A-team for Christianity at some point. I want to tell you there is no such thing as an A-team Christianity or a B-team Christianity. There is just Christianity. There's no JV team. There's no practice line team. There's just Christianity. And he's saying to you, are you going to get in the game? Are you going to get in the game? Are you going to live the Christian life that I've called you to? Not just asked you to, but commanded you to. Is Jesus not just your friend or your savior, but your Lord over your life? So this leads us to John 21, as I said before, that where Peter's out on, on, the, on the waters and Jesus is resurrected. This is now going into verse four. He says this, it says this, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net because it, there was a, such a large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So there's probably a familiar story for you right there. That's Luke 5. We looked at the very beginning. Jesus is saying, like, we're setting the stage. This is Peter's moment. And even John says to Peter, like, Peter, this is Jesus. This is for you, Peter. This is your moment. Go, run to him. And Peter is getting, is getting ready for Jesus to set the stage here and for Peter to be brought back into the arms of Jesus. Going on, says, The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with some fish on it and some bread. This is extremely important. So do you remember uh, in Luke 22, when we were reading that before, I told you to remember the, the kindled a fire there. So there's a lot of talk of fire. If you've read the Bible, fire is everywhere. It's, there's a lot of fire. And so roughly, uh, I was looking on Google, as, as we all do apparently, is that 
it's, it's between this number of 400 times and 600 times that, that fire is mentioned in scripture. And there's two times that this word anthrakia is used, fire of burning coals. And do you want to guess where those two times are? It's in John 18, which is where Peter denied Jesus three times. And here, where Jesus is about to restore Peter three times. I, did, I, I love that so much. It's just such a, like, Jesus is just setting the stage for Peter and saying, do you remember this? Like, we're going back to this, Peter. Like, you, you understand, like, what's going on here. I want to help you, but we need to go back to this. We need to remember, like, what did you do and where can we go from here? See, when you are at your lowest moment, and believe me, they're going to come. Maybe you've already had your lowest moment, or maybe you're, you're young. Maybe you just haven't experienced much of life yet. But believe me when I say that those are going to come, and you're going to want to go back to your comfortability. You're going to want to go back to what you know, go back to the things that are, that are nice and, and fuzzy and warm. But Jesus is ready to remind you that where you were is not who you are, and he wants to bring you out of that and bring you into his mission in the kingdom. Jesus goes on in verse 10, says this. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Interesting how he wants them to bring fish when he already had fish. But anyways, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to him and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. See, the first time I read this, I had the assumption that, that Jesus was just prodding at Peter. Where he's just like, Peter, do you love me? Like, really, Peter, do you really love me? Like, are you sure, Peter? You just showed me a few days ago you don't love me. Like, do you really love me? He's not doing that. He's saying, Peter, like, this is your darkest moment. I'm going to show you. I'm going to restore you. Not just for the first time you denied me. Not just for the second time you denied me. But for all times you denied me. And for us here, when you're in those moments of guilt, of weight, of shame, and just feeling that you're not as close to Jesus as you once were, he's going to lead you to that charcoal fire, that anthrakia moment. And he's going to say that you are going to, you're going to be brought out of that. You're going to have it exposed. You're going to have to confess for it. And that's scary. Confessing sin, we talked about that in James, James 5, where it says we are to confess sins to one another so that we may be healed. It's scary. There are some things that, that are just terrifying to confess about. But Peter still denied Jesus three times around that charcoal fire. Jesus exposed that, and he restored Peter three times around that fire. But even more than that, Peter sent, or Jesus sent Peter out, which is my last point, and we'll make this real quick, is that point three, Jesus takes your mess, and he makes it your message. Jesus takes your mess and he makes it your message. I want you to notice something here in this text is that when, Pete, when Jesus is, is saying to Peter, do you love me? And then Peter says, yes, I do. Jesus doesn't just say, I forgive you. No, he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And the first time I read this, I was like, that's weird. Like, why doesn't he just say, I forgive you? 
Because that's what Jesus does. He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. And he says, forgive. We need to forgive all those around us. We are given this ministry of forgiveness. But yet, when it comes to here, he just says, feed my sheep. What is that? Why does he do that? The reason why he does that is because he wants to take Peter and he's saying, this is a moment I want to restore you in, but we're not staying here. We're going somewhere else from this. We're moving forward. We're actually going to use your, your mess, Peter, and we're going to take it and we're going to use it to preach the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, I want to stress this point. He is going to take these charcoal moment, these charcoal fire moments, these anthrachia moments in your life, whether it's with friends, whether it's with loved ones, counselors, maybe it's with your wife or husband, maybe it's just between you and God. And then once he's finished with you there, once he's done exposing and uprooting this, this, this sin in your life, he's going to take you from there. He's going to take you off the beach. And he's going to say, feed my sheep. He's going to say, you've done these things. There's no denying that, but we need to go from here and we need to go and preach the gospel. We need to preach the kingdom. And you do not need to be ashamed of these things anymore. That's the beauty of the gospel, that he takes darkness and makes it light. He takes sin and turns into righteousness. He makes us whole again. He takes brokenness from our lives and he restores it and brings the beauty and the splendor of Jesus and offers it to the world. And for example, I want to say here quickly is that for me, if I was to share my message with somebody, I can't relate with somebody who's a drug addict. If I could not relate with someone who is a drug addict and preach the gospel to them, I will do that, but I can't relate because I wasn't there. I've never been a drug addict in my life. But what I can relate with is a porn addict. I can relate with someone on that because I was in that mess. I was there. I've been in those moments where I'm just like, I just don't got this Christianity thing. I'm just stuck here and I just don't know what to do. But Jesus takes you. He takes you to these moments with friends, with people that you trust, with people that you can talk about these things with. And he says, feed my sheep. Take this mess and make it into your message. And he's done that in my life. So don't run away from these moments of restoration that Jesus is taking you to because it's scary. It's dangerous. Being a follower of Jesus is dangerous, but it's the best way to live. Dane Ortley, in one of my favorite books, Gentle and Lowly, says this, returning to God in fresh contrition, however ashamed and disgusted with ourselves, he will not tepidly pardon, he will abundantly pardon. He is not merely accept us, he sweeps us up into his arms again. He goes on to say, he intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. You taking your mess to him. The amazing thing as we wrap up here about Peter is that after this moment, after this, this, this moment on the beach, is that in Acts, he, he goes and he preaches the gospel to thousands of people. And it says in scripture that he led th- over 3,000 people to Jesus through his first sermon. And he went from this man, this scared young adult who couldn't even tell a servant girl who didn't even, her testimony wouldn't have mattered in that time that he knew Jesus. But yet he goes and he's bold and he preaches the kingdom to thousands of people. And that's only because he was brought here, he was restored. And just as he brought Peter in, he wants to bring you in. And so in summary, I just want to say this, our three points. Jesus has a new future for you. The lie you tell yourself is that God is done with you. And Jesus takes your mess and he makes it your message. And so you might be asking yourself, how does 
Peter just have his sins just waved off like that? Like, why is it that Jesus just says, okay, like, feed my sheep, that's awesome, that's great, let's go, let's go. But the thing is that Jesus didn't just dismiss Peter's sins. He actually paid for them. He paid for Peter's sins through the blood of, that they shed for us through the burial, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the only reason why I can be up here preaching that you can have a relationship with Jesus. It's because he has done this and there is no more work that needs to be done. If so, if you're sitting there and you're saying like, I don't know what I need to do about, about this whole Christianity thing. I don't know if I need to do more things. I don't know if I need to like, if I need to pray more or read my Bible more, or do more scripture, whatever it is. You don't need to. Jesus says that my grace is sufficient for you. And all you gotta do is trust in him, believe that the son of God died and resurrected for you. And you can have eternal life that starts now and goes off into eternity. And so I want to pray for us quickly, and we'll be going. So, Jesus, you are so much bigger, so much stronger, so much mightier than we can ever imagine, God. But you're also gracious, you're kind, you're gentle and lowly, you're waiting for us to come to you, God, with our mess, to come to us with a for us to come to you with our, our frustrations, our guilt, and our shame, and our, our feeling of isolation, God. God, you want to do a work in our hearts. And there are things maybe this morning that we're holding on to, these weights, these, these things that we maybe haven't even told a single person. God, you know these things. You know our hearts. I just pray, Jesus, that you can reveal these things to us. Maybe if we haven't thought about them for a while, that you can bring them to light in our minds right now. And we can say to you, Jesus, I give this to you. I lay this at your feet. At this charcoal fire moment, God, I give this to you. And you're just waiting to, to bring us into your arms again. So I thank you, Jesus, that you give us that. I pray this all in your name. Amen.